0: what, $10 trillion of assets under management in the private markets.
1: We only have one mandate uh, as an asset manager, it is to generate the highest return
2: without undue risk of loss. Hey, hey, you're tuning in to Billion Dollar Moves, and this is part of a bonus series. Quick takes from some of my conversations from the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum at Davos for you as you build 2023 as the important decision maker and leader that you are. It features my quick thoughts, a discussion, snippets of a panel that moved me, and if you're intrigued, there are fuller recordings either on my YouTube channel or other sources which will be listed in the show notes. Now, the cliff notes on Davos. Every January, a highly curated selection of invitees from global business, government, civil society, media, and academia converge on the Swiss town to attend sessions designed to spark productive discussions around the most pressing issues of the day and ultimately drive impact and action. Now, many people question whether the 53rd meeting would still hold relevance in a post-pandemic world given criticism of the Davos men. And as perhaps a biased first-timer, my answer is an undoubted yes. I can now confirm Davos remains an event full of paradoxes, A modest ski town near Zurich, Switzerland that otherwise is unassuming, boasts the richest and the most powerful. And yes, the juxtaposition is uncanny of perhaps the most climate enthusiasts in a week and yet criticism of private jets by billionaires and politicians taking up more carbon footprint than it should. But Davos isn't just about the keynotes, the meeting is also famous for the networking and deal making that goes on in the corridors, side rooms, hotel suites and Barry's Piano Bar of this alpine town. As one of the white badges as a young global leader of WEF, I soaked in the opportunity to learn and unlearn, contribute and yes, chat with many a Davos man. So you're getting my inside look. Now let's get started. The excitement on private equity, despite what's weighing very heavily on our shoulders, right? It is, uh, uh, the recession is already here. Uh, We're in the middle of a huge generational shift. The largest wealth transfer of our lifetimes into baby boomer wives who are inheriting and earning their potential and as well the next generation that are very focused on aligning profit and purpose. But can this truly be done? So to start off here, the framing of this conversation is going to be macro, micro. We'll look at uh, not just the good stuff, but I like to go into the good, bad and ugly. So we'll also talk about the mistakes so that you all as private (coughs) investors can move forward and and learn uh, from what the veterans here have learned from their portfolio that has uh, done well over the years. So to start off, uh, let me turn to Rob Lucas on CVC and tell us a little bit on what you're seeing. You know, 133 billion, you've been in the business for decades now. What is your macro perspective?
0: Well, it's, I think it's very, very interesting being here in Davos, actually, and just picking up the, the sense and the, and the feel, of, um, which um, is rather more positive than I had imagined it might be in actual fact. Uh, quite interesting. Vindy and I were just talking before we came in here about the sort of our respective portfolios. And uh, sitting in May of last year, I think the, there was a lot of concern about exactly how the macro would, would play through um, and how that would impact um, particularly coming into the Q3, Q4 of 2022. And I have to say the portfolio held up surprisingly well and, um, and so now we're looking to, starting to look really towards Q1, Q2 to really see whether that, that is retained. Uh, but sitting here today, um, certainly based on what we see within the CVC portfolio uh, specifically, encouraging.
2: Yeah. And tell us a little bit, I mean, to give the flavor of, you know, what sort of work have you been focused on? What does your portfolio construction look like? You know, how heavily weighted are you in the publics and so on and so forth, if you can speak about that?
0: Sure. Well, we, we have been anticipating a, a correction for about the last five years now. Mm. And uh, and so within we've shifted our portfolio over that last five years quite materially, um, much more towards healthcare, education. We're very big uh, in sport. Um, the, these types of very resilient sectors, sectors that are seeing growth, but also have innate resilience to them. And I think what we're seeing within the, the performance of the businesses at the moment is how that is, that is playing through. Um, and when I say we've been sort of look, trying to factor in um, uh, downturns into the base cases of our, um, our forecast, we've been imposing uh, quite a severe recession, not as a sensitivity, but actually um, how will these businesses perform? How will we be able to achieve the returns for our, uh, for our LPs? if this correction occurs and the reason we were assuming that was because we just felt that we weren't sure how it was going to arise what was going to trigger it but we were pretty certain that during the course of uh, the holding period of those investments something was going to occur that was going to create this sort of uh, volatility and uncertainty.
2: And Amir um, as for you you know representing The pensioners uh, with EPF in Malaysia, you've taken a creative approach as well with Mm -hmm. launching uh, SME that's Sharia compliant. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that fits into what you're seeing in the macro perspective?
3: I think it's important to recognize that we are Malaysia's largest pension fund Mm -hmm. and uh, the demographics uh, indicate that we have a a constituent within our membership that actually are very uh, focused in terms of uh, abiding by their religious belief. And as the fund manager, we can't ignore that part. Uh, and sometimes people get very worried when you talk about religious belief, yeah? But fundamentally, Sharia investments are not differentiated so much. It is actually ethical investment. It's choosing the type of sectors that you are actually invested in. So we kind of avoid gambling, we kind of avoid alcohol, uh, we kind of avoid those sort of areas which are not positive. Sharia investments also mean that we have to be very careful in terms of how we leverage that amount. Uh, because it requires us to to make sure that the funding mechanism doesn't overburden the investments. And by doing that, we create the new asset class By creating it, we we fulfill the requirements of the investee that is to come in with us.
2: Mm. So what you're touching on here is really the movement towards aligning the values of your beneficiaries Mm. with your investors. And I think that's a trend that we're continuing to see right in. And this is sort of the crux of the discussion of where private investors have a role to play in in the real economy. And to that, you know, uh, I want to turn to Sui. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach and why you have uh, actually emerged from this, not really with as much bruises that many others have had? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Really pleased to be here.
1: We are pension asset manager. By definition, that means that we need to invest in generations. So we're a very long-term investor. When you look at it long-term, there are a number of value drivers that short-term investors may not see. That includes a lot of things that we talked about, whether it's an environment, climate, whether it's a governance, uh, uh, putting the right governance, thinking about stakeholders' interests, Mm -hmm. and uh, what impact you're gonna have to the society as well. We take all of those very seriously. We, We set up a responsible investing group, actually back in 2008, and had our first report published 2008 I don't think anybody actually saw it, including our, uh, ourselves internally. A lot of them, but now everybody understands the importance of those, and that we do practice that internally to be able to make that happen. Uh, in Canada, actually, there. The, 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 I guess the leaders had a a foresight to be able to set up the pension investment system such that it it is more like a private asset manager at an arm's length from the government. Mm -hmm. So with that uh, governance uh, structure, when we were set up um, about two decades ago, um, and uh, with the pension reform that happened in the country, we were in f- very high cash inflow position. So that actually allowed us to invest a lot of our money into illiquid private investment. Mm. So we were voted as a, the largest, world's largest private equity investor for two years in a row by the Private Equity International. Mm. And uh, we're a very large investor in real estate, very large investor in infrastructure mm. and renewable assets and all of those as well. As we all know, I think the, the private asset, uh, Valuation does not correct as much as the public markets if you have done a particularly good job in investing. And that it does not have as much volatility. So mm-hmm. we, our financial year end is March. So last year end, March, you may remember that was a horrible market, horrible, horrendous public market. We suffered under public equity as well as fixed income. But thanks to our pub, uh, private investment that we have made, we generated p- a positive return. And this year so far, I think we've been doing quite well. And- Hopefully that continues.
2: Fascinating to hear that a pension fund is, uh, you know, doing more in the private. And I think it's, it's a direction that we want to take this a little bit further. Uh, and we'll come back to that. But Vindy. Uh, you work in, in CDNR, which has a very unique approach, working with families for decades. Uh, and you have a, a first hand view of what's going on, on the ground with uh, the generational shift as we talked about, uh, what families are thinking about. I'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, going to the level of working with family enterprises. What, what's happening on the ground here? Can you give us a little bit of a pulse of where the heads of these private investors are with regard to portfolio allocation?
4: Thank you. Uh, First of all, it's important to recognize that uh, family businesses constitute a very dominant uh, share of business as a whole. They account for almost two thirds of the global GDP. Mm -hmm. So they are hugely important and they create a lot of wealth everywhere in every part of the world. Uh, In terms of characteristics, I'd say our experience has been that they are naturally um, inclined to think more about multiple stakeholders which is kind of you know, that much harder in, in public markets as we've all read. Um, they always think about their employees, um, their consumers, customers, their suppliers, and actually very interestingly, most of these businesses originate in a local, local area, a town or a district or whatever, and they often therefore uh, are very well identified with the communities where they grow from. I think they also tend to have a pretty long-term view because they're thinking in terms, to your point, of intergenerational wealth transfer. Now it's a different question that only a third of them actually manage to successfully transfer that wealth. It's quite interesting, it's a paradox. Uh, But nevertheless, they're all thinking about it. Uh, They turn to private capital at several moments in their journey. I think they look to it for growth, they look to it for monetization, and they look to it at moments of succession. And the reason they come to private equity or private capital is because it's engaged investment. They're not just looking for money, they're looking for actually some form of engagement, operational engagement, help, support. Uh, And that's what uh, several private equity firms like our own bring. Uh, Relationships are key here and you have to build these, you have to really get to a person a position of mutual understanding and trust. That can take years. I mean, we've had relationships which go back six, seven, eight years before there's any transaction ever. Uh, and when you transact, it depends a little bit on understanding what their solution is, what their problem is, and finding the right solution. So if it's growth, how do you help them scale? Often they get to a certain place themselves. But then the question is how do they break through the glass ceiling either become international or become national or whatever it might be you can help them there or you can help them monetize if they want to take something off the table and actually remain engaged in the business you can help structure that for them or last but not least very often the next generation contrary to the first generation actually doesn't want to be in that business at all Mm. they want to do something completely different how do you solve for that how do you help them do that So I think actually private capital can play a very important role by understanding what they want. But interestingly, it works if philosophically the private capital firm thinks very similarly, thinks sustainably, thinks long term and creates value.
2: Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI code, help desk, and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. And I mean, this tensions that exist between generations is not unheard of, right? And I think I I was reading a report where uh, there's a huge percentage where they've not actually planned it as well. So although we talk about the shift, at least in the US, we talk about 84 trillion in the next 20 years between uh, baby boomers to millennial children the inheritance plan has not been fully baked and and thought through in a way that uh, I guess would be ideal. When you think about the trends that you're seeing, and I'm leading up to essentially what you you talked about, uh, values, right? Values alignment between the generations and how it's private capital is a way to create that change. Can you give us an example of how a family you've worked with or a client that you've worked with has been able to do this at a scale that is meaningful globally?
4: Well, look, there was a retail business that had got to a certain scale on their own. And um, we'd been speaking with them and they had a certain ambition. They wanted to grow beyond that. They wanted to grow internationally. Um, And they recognized, they were smart enough to recognize that they needed uh, the active engagement of people who might have actually done this sort of thing before. And our firm has a number of people like that. We have a number of operational partners and advisors who've lived that life. Uh, and therefore, that was the, 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 the marriage that came together. They also wanted to take some risk off the table mm-hmm. and therefore they wanted to sell a pretty chunky stake. In that case, they sold a majority stake. But their objective was to institutionalize, to professionalize and institutionalize the company uh, so that it would be there for sustainably for a long period of time with their values. They wanted a period of time where the family was in control. They, they managed the business. And eventually, it would pass on to professional management just like any other company. And that's exactly what happened over a period of five or six, seven years. Now, the interesting thing there is that I think the family has been able to both monetize their own wealth, create a company that hopefully should stand the test of time because it's founded on very fundamental values, uh, and, and of course, the private equity firm has also benefited from it. And so have our investors. Right.
0: I, I would totally uh, endorse what, what Vind is saying there. Just a, a, another example would be um, uh, Breitling. Um, so that's a, that's a Swiss uh, family business. Uh, it was the final Swiss family business. And they were actually looking to uh, to sell the business. They felt that they were at that point mm-hmm. and hadn't really considered private capital. And it was only when we started talking and it was all the same things that Vindy was saying, You know, a recognition that actually um, there, there are an increasing number of uh, long-term, highly responsible uh, investors and owners within the private equity community. That is what it's based on, but that's not always the way it is. And I think that therefore getting that that message across um, that in terms of being able to effect this transition, in in terms of being able to really help a business uh, adapt and change. And whether that is to um, the different markets, the macroeconomic, or indeed as we're um, moving on to here to all the challenges um, and requirements of uh, ESG, um, with it within and the and the environment and, and the and, and the and the climate. You know these are big, big things which actually we can be in a we we have huge resources to bring to bear.
2: Yeah and and Rob you gave me an excellent prompt there. Creating sustainable value. We see this on every prospectus these days and of course is also the mantra of CVC. And yet uh, with ESG being you know the buzzword <coughs> these days Talk to us a little bit about some of your mistakes in actually trying to integrate ESG as the standard and the norm.
0: Thanks, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think think one of the most important things to recognize here is that um, we've been doing this for a very, very long time. And the reason we've been doing it is because of uh, partners such as CPP and, but uh, for all of us uh, who have been in the industry for a long time, the public pension plans have been huge um, uh, supporters and huge providers of, of our capital. The whole question of ESG has been right at the top of their agenda for many, many years indeed. So this isn't, this isn't new um, and to come to your point, I mean, we've all been feeling our way, trying to uh, adapt to Um, this huge requirement within within the world. So um, this is, for us, 20, 25 years, something of that that sort where we've been factoring this. So yes, we've certainly made a lot of mistakes over those times. How would I summarize those? Probably (laughs) in terms of um, being very clear about objectives, Mm. Um, being being (laughs) very clear um, about the way at which it integrates in, into, the, into the business. It's so easy, and I, you know, we, and I'm sure everyone else, uh, in the early days were victims of, of feeling that, that, that this, or, or this taking the, the, the shape of sort of box ticking. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've had to work incredibly hard to move the whole question of uh, ESG and sustainability away from that to something that's a really deeply held um, uh, with belief within, the, within our business. Um, and so keeping it very, very simple. Uh, is, is another uh, thing. We, I think there's a tendency, and we've been uh, guilty of this, to overcomplicate. Um, and so we now have four, four central pillars that, that we work to, all of our portfolio companies. Uh, all of them are uh, audited uh, annually. We actually uh, are invested in uh, one of the preeminent um, auditing and um, rating businesses, Echovardis, uh, and all of our businesses each year are audited and rated. Uh, we then have a, uh, a KPI plan. We have 50-point KPI that all for each of our uh, portfolio companies. They all work to this. Uh, each of our portfolio companies produce a sustainability report every year. Um, and we are then working very, very carefully because we believe very strongly that this is also about um, uh, evidence, uh, tangible evidence. Words are very, very cheap. Um, and there are lots of words that are spouted, <laughs> I'm spouting now, but, you know, uh, are spouted around, around the subject. So hard evidence. So we are really trying to, we've signed up as CBC to science based targets. Um, and we are um, on a progression of getting all of our portfolio companies to sign up to science-based targets as well. So they're the lessons that we've really, really learned, Sarah, mainly through um, uh, mistakes in in the past. Again, the the concept is is easy to get around, but in practice, it's not easy at all. So for example, uh, if we are looking at an investment which does not have the best um, positioning, current positioning from an ESG perspective, what do Vindi or I or other of the leading firms do? Do we walk away from that as a potential investment? Or do we say, no, we believe we can really make positive change within that business and uh, we are going to do it. I happen to believe uh, that the latter is the way that we should should go. We should not be uh, afraid to invest in and then really um, uh, set about creating change within business. Because I just think, you know, with what, $10 trillion of assets under management in the private markets, the ability to take a very long-term perspective um, and, uh, and the ability to bring immense resources, operational resources to bear, we have not just a responsibility but we have the ability to make uh, great change and 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 that's what we should be doing
2: yeah so I love that so essentially you know not making it a ticking in the box exercise, but actually also working with companies that may not already have these best practices to create that change. And you know, I think this is, you're singing to my song here, you're singing to my choir of the role of LPs, right? If LPs demand this of the GPs, this is where uh, the change happens. And for that, I want to turn to uh, Sui. You know, stakeholder capitalism is another buzzword, right? You represent uh, the people essentially and, and their retirement plans, which is a huge responsibility and you're, you've just said you know, you, you're in the private markets but you're taking a long-term approach and yet you know we've not even touched on climate, the decarbonization imperative. How are you thinking about all these demands from your stakeholders and matching that with how you're designing your portfolio moving forward?
1: So our, we only have one mandate as an asset manager. It is to generate the highest return without undue risk of loss. So which is generate highest return for risk that we're taking. So with that in mind, we would focus on the areas that we believe that there's long-term value, creation and value uh, differences. So you're talking about the climate. So climate could make it or break in many of the, of the companies. I think it's great that a lot of companies have, and the countries have announced this net zero uh, emission target. We have announced that last year, that by 2040, 2050 actually, we're gonna be net zero, carbon neutral, um, in all scope. The hard part is actually being all scope. <laughs> uh, and what are, what are we doing about it? So we actually, this year by March, so in two months, we're gonna be carbon neutral for our operations. Um, and we have announced that we're gonna make 130 billion, so almost 100 billion US dollars, of investments in green and transition assets. I mentioned just now that we're one of the largest investors in renewable, we're big in investing in Uh, uh, climate technologies as well and green technologies. We are engaging with the companies uh, very closely to help them develop the transition plans. And then while you're doing so, you'll be surprised how much opportunities you can find. For example, we invested in one of the largest uh, shopping malls in in the UK, Traffold. And then we were helping the management actually to start measuring baseline carbon emission. A lot of you probably know that even that task alone right now is not an easy task. So in the process of doing so, we actually work with the management team to identify 60% of emission reduction opportunities in an economic way. By that what I mean is like ROI positive way. So I mean it's a combination of a lot of things are like light bulbs to the installations, to the paint and all the other things. But if these are possible, it's a value generating ROI positive. For the public market investments, we actually use our voting rights to make sure that companies develop this transition plan. Mm-hmm. We have internal uh, proxy voting guideline that if the companies does not have the climate related investment strategy um, for that actually that meets our criteria, we vote down the reappointment of the board members. So we're very active on this. And for our new investments, and these are really important because for us to be carbon neutral, all our portfolio companies and all of this side as well needs to be carbon (laughs) neutral, right? Uh, So for our new investments, um, we have this climate assessment uh, security selection framework we developed internally, which is completely integrated with our investment process. So our team before coming to the investment committee need to run the scenarios on extreme climate extreme cases, not only looking at the risk, but also looking at the opportunities as well so that we can make sure with the new investment as well as existing portfolio companies, we can work towards the carbon neutral. So it's one of the areas. As Rob mentioned, when you look at ESG, it's very broad. You could be like, you could have 200 questions, right? Right. You cannot make changes in all of those areas, is our view. So climate is one of the areas that we've been really focusing on. We've been really focusing on uh, governance and also bringing in the diversity because we Mm -hmm. saw the needs of that as an investor Ability to bring the diverse views really help you making the better investment decisions. So we have done a lot of uh, research and there's a lot of other researches out there in the market as well that connects to the better investment returns and company performance when you have diverse views around the table. I have to say that actually private equity industry in that sense is a little bit behind. Um, mm. So McKinsey just had a, like last month had a report coming out that might be the first report on the, on the EDI in private equity industry that uh, shows that it's only about 20% of the private equity investment professionals are female. But if it goes up to the managing director level, uh, it goes down to 10%. If you go to the investment committee level, actually it goes down to low single digit. I don't know whether you have any female members in your global investment committee. It is really hard to see that. But I also look at that in the, from the positive side as well. That means that we have built the pipeline of junior people in the private equity. So five to 10 years down the road with a lot of work on the retention, development. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna see the different picture uh, in, in, the, in the industry. In our organization, we've been focusing on this EDI for more than a decade. And we have about 35% of our investment professionals female, 40% of our investment professionals are <coughs> ethnic and racial minority.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that and definitely a very important view. So we've touched a little bit on climate and now you've prompted me to DEI, which is a favorite topic. Can't lie about that. And I do want to turn to Amir, uh, you know, uh, with Malaysian roots, understanding EPF and, and sort of your mandate as well moving forward. You know, in North America, it's, it's almost standard conversation when you go into an LP room where they're talking about DEI initiatives, right? We're talking about emerging manager program. Uh, people like Bank of America have balance sheet investing where they allocate to diverse managers, even though the track record is a difficult hurdle to get over. I wanted to get a sense from mm. Malaysia and even broader in, in Asia. Of course, diversity is with a different lens, right? It, it's it's very different from country to country. How are you seeing that with LP capital being a, you know, a pension fund capital being a, a huge source of, of growth for a lot of uh, private investors?
3: It's important to, to recognize, yeah. Uh, you, you, you cannot presume that you can uh, transport uh, Uh, similar sort of methodologies and presume that the recipient will be okay. So from an EPF point of view, what we decided to do is we align what is the material goal. So for for example, uh, ESG uh, requirements, uh, our portfolio has to be ESG compliant by 2030 and climate neutral by 2050. Having that statement doesn't mean anything if you don't have the engagement levels with the organization. So one of the key elements that we, we spend a lot of effort and time is working through our GPs, working through our investing companies and making sure they understand what are the expectations of, of EPF. And in that process, saying your expectations doesn't mean that it transfer, tra- translates. Sure. It's actually being able to also facilitate them to transfer knowledge, transfer ideas so that they can begin to apply that on the ground. And I think that is much more powerful yeah. Then actually saying and, and then deciding to be in or out. Yeah? I think we all have to work together mm-hmm. to actually lift the, the, the investing companies to the level that they have. So when you look at diversity, you look at, at inclusion and, and elements, one of the key things that we measure and we, we look at that, similar to what CPPIB is doing, yeah, is that pre-investment, what are the lens that we apply? And what are the key concern areas that we have? If you don't meet the requirements, then we work discourage the investment along that line. But if you're already in the portfolio, what do we engage with these people? Making sure that they make it transparent, making sure that they, they they have programs that can lift this element out. And by changing that, then I think you begin to make material changes in the whole society that we have in. At the end of the day, we are a Malaysian Pension Fund. Uh, 15.7 million members come into EPF. Yeah? At the end of the day, I hope that by the time they retire, not only do they have enough of a nest egg, enough of a return that they've earned, but actually they live in a society that's a lot more balanced. So what we are trying to do is also move our investments into areas that are useful for society, invest in healthcare, invest in aged care, because these are necessary infrastructure requirements that are required. But I will not invest in those areas if they do not meet the requirements of return. Mm-hmm. But finding that sweet spot that both gets together is the ultimate goal that we want to do. Because then I make a positive change for society.
2: Yeah, and Army, and, if I could dive a little bit deeper there. I, I'm curious because I think in, in North America, Canada, and I would say in... In America as well. The endowments are are very active in the private space as well. I mean, of course, we have David Swenson, the legend, uh, who had allocated quite a fair bit into private equity and venture capital and had returned from that. And he's used it as a lever of growth uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, I guess skepticism from the others on like, oh, you know, this is Yale's approach, it wouldn't work for everyone. But at the same time, he's created a lot of change and opened up a lot of opportunities. When you say you, you know, you can't basically uh, copy and paste, right? Essentially, what you're and you can't copy and paste because the contexts are different. Correct. When you think about your stakeholders, are they now asking you the hard questions in the way that the students who are being represented in America are asking the CIOs, hey, you know, why are you in fossil fuels? There's Mm. actually protests on the street. Are are you seeing that in Asia?
3: I I, I think if you look at the generation that's coming, the generation that's coming is a lot more aware of what's important to them. And they're, they're a lot more focused in terms of what they, they want their investments to work. So if, uh, earlier we started talking Sharia, Sharia. It, it's a principle-based uh, approach, right? They've decided I want to be in, even if the return is a bit less, I'll still want to be in here. And we're seeing that sort of move uh, coming on. So as uh, the, the pension manager, I've got to react to that, right? right. I've got to make sure that what, what I do, what I interact, what I set out as my policies actually align in terms of the requirements. Making it transparent is probably the biggest goal that I have in the short term, yeah, because the, the market is still a little bit immature. So if you want the members to actually understand it, make it transparent, and, and then make choices available. Make, uh, for example, members have the opportunity to choose which segments of the investments that they want to be in, rather than a, a homogeneous fund. Yeah, and, and that choice basis allows the portfolio to move in that right form.
2: Yeah, so I, I love what you are saying here with regard to um reacting to the market, right? But one of the key things that we're also sort of aiming at here is the role of all of you as the check writers and the influences of the check writers to direct that change. And Vindi, I wanna get a sense from you with regard to DEI, the impact that you're seeking to create with CDNR, how much of that is a push versus pull?
4: You know, it comes to a really fundamental view of business. And I think uh, many of us who've been around for a long time in business, I mean, I grew up in Unilever uh, where you basically believed that if you did the right thing by your consumer, Mm -hmm. you took care of your employees. uh, They were the best, the most diverse, the most creative. You looked after them. You had partnerships with your suppliers. Uh, You looked after the communities where your factories were and where your installations were. You know what? You would win market share and you would create value. That's a very simple model of business, which many of the people in my firm, for example, believe because we're a very industrial firm. We have 40 operating partners and advisors who come from the names that you'll all recognize. So that's the ethos in the business, in in the firm. Now, when you think about that, to be honest, I sometimes read this word impact investing and actually begin to question, well, what does that mean? if you have an impact fund, what does it say about the rest of your funds, that they don't have impact? So actually, we have chosen a slightly different model, which is to have impact in anything that we do. Um, Private equity has a lot of reach, and Rob talked about this. Think about that, it turns over every five years. In 15 years, you could touch a third of the world's economy. So you have huge reach, and therefore, potential for impact. Provided you actually do it wherever you can and everywhere you can. So our view is a little bit, look, we will improve and impact everything that we invest in.
2: Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and Loudest Talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jujitsu living entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook, he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a Walt ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know, that's our jam. Listen to it, talking too loud, wherever you get your podcast.
4: Right? It's a bit like what Rob said earlier. He said, <clears throat> do you just walk away from an investment because it's in the black industry? Well, actually, no, because black has to go to brown and then to light brown and eventually it'll get to green. You're not going to go overnight from black to green. So our commitment is to improve everything that we invest in. And this is a very important part in terms of practicality of the investment committee discussions. When we look at any asset, we look at its growth profile, its margin profile, but also its ESG footprint. and we're quite thoughtful about what aspects of the ESG footprint we're gonna focus on for that company for that five-year period because you can't do everything and you certainly will not be able to do everything. So pick, be choiceful, as has been said on the panel, be very choiceful about the, the things that are really going to move the needle. If you think about some of our industrial assets, well, they're clearly, it's all about carbon and therefore you have to have that on your agenda. Scope one, scope two, scope three, science-based targets, all of that. If you think about a healthcare business, well, carbon might be important because they also run vans and so on, but patient outcomes becomes far more important and healthcare outcomes. So actually picking the right indicators that you're gonna drive Mm. in each business is hugely important. And then again, as has been said, Making sure that those are totally integrated into your business strategy and plans. It can't be sort of parked on the periphery. It's got to be part of what you do every day. Because you know, when you think about ESG, there are these 15 or 16 elements. They're all done inside the company somewhere.
2: Yeah. And, and Rob, you know, bring us some tangible examples here of how you've done it. You know, we, we talk a lot about integrating, right? ESG and all these good stuff that's part of the business. But even till today, you know, there's impression of, hmm, you know, we're under tremendous pressure and we have to deliver financial returns almost that it's decoupled, but you know, what we're trying to say, it's more and more one and the same. How are you actively doing that with your work?
0: Well, I think the point you make about the two being absolutely coupled is really, really <coughs> fundamental. The fact that um, more and more uh, achieving top quartile financial returns is inextricably linked with actually improving and enhancing the environmental and ESG positioning of the business. I, I think that's absolutely um, fundamental to, to what, we're, what we're doing. And that's why um, looking at everything through this sort of single lens of, of building value within businesses, this is an integral. Part of it, so just just to your question, well, I mean, it's just fascinating what uh, uh, Mindy was saying about uh, Unilever. I mean, Unilever have done an amazing job over the time, went out, you know, ahead of everyone else, ploughing a, a, a very uh, deep furrow in this in this uh, in in this area, and uh, just recently we have acquired um, Unilever's uh, tea business. Um, Lipton and PG Tips. I mean, it's a, it's a huge business. It's really vertically integrated right um, from uh, the, um, the tea growing estates out in Kenya and other areas through to the tea pouring into the pot. And while we were acquiring that business, there were some ESG related questions uh, that were raised. I can tell you, I actually, during while we were doing that investment, I actually took Paul Polman's book, uh, Net Positive, and read it. And for those of you who haven't read it, it's a brilliant book, so I I recommend it. But that gave me huge confidence in terms of what Unilever had been doing within this, within the business, that what we were being told uh, was true and also gave me huge confidence that we could actually take this business on uh, even uh, a further um, uh, journey in relation to, um, in particular, focusing on the sort of uh, wellness um, and the and the communities in, that we are uh, that we are uh, influencing the fact that this is such a large influential business and we can uh, influence uh, globally the way the, the, the that that approach this approach is is pursued. So I, th- I think that this is uh, a very very important area and we have. Numerous examples um, where we have we have taken on this challenge and we are doing this. I mean, one of one of them, which sort of seems a strange one, is a business called Jabka, which is uh, an Eastern European supermarket business, and uh, there the the management team and, and CVC have absolutely embraced um, uh, grappling with all, all these uh, all these elements of. Um, uh, of ESG and diversity and inclusion and really working with the communities that these shops were serving. Yeah. And it's extraordinary the uh, the turnaround. This business was struggling, it was losing franchisees, it was, uh, its MPS scores with its customers was not great. Um, and these have turned around really, really dramatically uh, through uh, focusing on this. And we, we take that team um, who are, Brilliant uh, uh, presenters and brilliant I- inspirers uh, ac- across um, right. the the whole of the portfolio, showing businesses which they don't have to be the sort of one businesses that we all look at and go, ah, oh, well, that's clearly where you know the yeah. uh, there's a huge ESG benefit. It, it it's any any business. I'd just like to pick up on the tea thing actually. Twenty years ago. You
4: reminded me, Rob, Uh, we decided to um, ensure that all Lipton tea bags in the world were sourced from sustainable tea. This is the time I was in Udilever, a long time ago. We didn't know how to do it, but it was just a commitment we made. We were able to do it in five years. Mm. And interestingly, the consumer thought that sustainable tea is better tea. They didn't understand at the time what sustainability meant. They thought it's better tea. So the business won market share and it's a win-win for all. Yes, I, I that. think the, the real lesson there is, this is not a contradiction. If you do it right, you know, environment is all about doing more with less.
2: And that's excellent in actually you know, giving us a picture of the impact that you can make with, and tea, I think we can all relate to that, right? And private equity being uh, literally in, in every part of, of our lives has that tremendous power, and as we wrap up here, you know, I wanna do a quick fire round uh, with each panelist, starting with Sui, To the GPs in the room, I'm sure there are many here uh, that, and that are tuning in. What is your advice to them as they think about the power that they have with their check, Sui?
1: I think the ground um, we talked about that meeting the, the profit and the purpose is growing. So I would really encourage all the investors to look at that ground or helping that ground to grow for all of us.
2: Mm. Amir.
3: I think there are lots of ways that you can do and earn financial returns. By the end of the day, we all live in a connected world. We have, there are consequences of what we do. And what we want to do is actually prosper and get everybody out the value chain. Mm-hmm. So again, linking that, that purpose is fundamental to everything. I would like the GPs to be
0: a lot more thoughtful in how they they, they invest.
2: Rob and Vindi, short answers.
0: I would say, recognising that we are in a very privileged position to be able to influence um, the future of the world. In this in this respect, we have. Um, Long time frames that we can operate to. We have incredibly supportive uh, backers and supporters and partners in terms of the LPs. Uh, and we have immense resources, and we need to uh, bring those to bear. Finish.
4: Improve every asset we invest in sustainably, that'll create value for well, everybody. Fair.
2: Yes. And with that, you know, we talked, uh, I mean, this was a short session and we tried to cover a lot of ground with the power that private equity and all of you private investors have, but not to make it a tick boxing approach. To work with companies, not to say, no, you don't make the cut, but to actually work and create value and and bring them forward in the journey. And to really take the power of your check and the role that we have really, the fact that we're all um, in privileged positions, we need to challenge our systems of belief our systems and structures that we're holding in place, that hold others back, and what we can do from voting, downvoting, as Suyi has said, to be more choiceful. in the choices that you make that actually will move the needle. And, and I ask and I urge all of you here today to consider that. As we celebrate the snow in Davos, <laughs> among the elites and the powerful comes a lot of responsibility. And I urge all of you today to walk away with that inspiration that this can be done. And that you have LPs who are patient capital to drive this forward. Thank you very much. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Villain Dollar Moves.